Welcome to episode 175. Today, we learn how to increase student choice in writing. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Many of us organize our writing units based on genre units. We'll have one on the personal narrative and one on nonfiction writing and one on poetry and so on. There is student choice in genre units when students get to pick the story they want to write. However, what if a student wants to write an action story instead of a series of poems? In this way, genre units limit students' choice. On today's podcast, the legendary writing workshop expert, Matt Glover, will share how we can create craft and process studies that provide greater freedom of choice. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so honored to host today Matt Glover on the podcast. He's going to talk to us about craft and process studies, units that provide writers with choice of genre. Matt, you came to ISPP, International School of Phnom Penh, several weeks ago. And mm-hmm. when I came back to school, teachers were raving about your workshop and implementing the strategies already with success. When I heard that, I had to right away uh, interview you and host you on the podcast. And you graciously did. so. Matt, welcome to the podcast. No, thanks so much for um, letting me be here. I've been really been looking forward to this. It's not every day when teachers say, I went to a weekend workshop and I got a lot out of it, particularly a weekend workshop. So um, you were highly recommended and I could not say no to not invite you. So, can you <laughs> please start us off with telling us about how you spend your days, where you spend your days and your most uh, proudest professional achievement yeah so my um my teaching background is in first grade i was a first grade teacher for a number of years then became an elementary principal and then was the principal of a large early childhood school just north of cincinnati ohio where i live um and it was really at that time that i became really interested in early writing um and so um due in large part to some work we were doing with katie wood ray at the time um and so everything I know about writing, I know from Katie. And so that led to Katie and I writing a couple of um, books together, for another books on my own. Um, and for the last, gosh, 14 years now, I'm doing this type of consulting work full time. And so most of my time is spent in classrooms, um, especially during the school year, teaching in classrooms with teachers, um, um, teachers watching and really unpacking um, our thinking and thinking through things together in classrooms and writing workshops. Um, some of my time is spent in conferences and workshops, but most of it's really um, supporting teachers um, in classrooms and thinking about classroom practice. I do a fair amount of curriculum work and unit planning and projecting, but um, a lot of it's spent in classrooms, which is great joy, right? I now get to do um, all the things I liked about being a principal, you know, in terms of working with teachers and students without having to deal with all the other issues that principals are always dealing with, right? And so it's um, really um, just a, you know, greatly enjoyable job that I um, that I have now. Um, so I spend about a, um, 
you know, a third of my work is in international schools or more now, probably closer to half of my work in international schools, the other um, half in um, schools across the United States. And so, um, um, yeah, so I spend a lot of my time just um, um, when I'm not here in Cincinnati, um, most of my time spent in schools um, in a variety of places. Um, and as far as a professional achievement, I, you know, it's, it's tricky. I think um, there are each of the books I've written, I feel really strongly about in different ways. And I think the thing that, you know, I feel best about those is that I think the books that I've written and the projects that we've, you know, worked on are books that I feel really good about from a content standpoint. It's not always the thing that's, um, you know, the ideas I'm writing about aren't always the things that um, are going to sell best necessarily, right. Or the things that, um, um, yeah, are always the most mainstream things. But the ideas um, that I'm thinking and writing about, I care passionately about, right? And so um, I feel really good about the content that I've put out in the world, right? Um, and that way, I just uh, feel good about the stance I've taken on things. Can you tell us, a, mm -hmm. since you've been a principal and since you've uh, taught for many, many years, and now you are uh, have the wonderful gift of being with teachers in their classes often. What is a story that has really influenced your teaching practice to this day? Yeah, you know, one of the things that's interesting, it's a, um, it's a non, you know, it's a teaching story, but a, a, not a typical teaching story. I mean, so many things I think about are really related to universal learning principles. And so one story that I tell all the time, right, um, most people, you know, listen to this if they've heard me talk before, probably heard this story. But it's a um, story from long ago now, about fifteen or so years ago. Um, it's a story about um, um, my wife and I going to a wedding and taking our two older children with us, and um, my um, wife um, teaching my son Harrison how to dance. Right, um, and it's um, a story that just really perfectly encapsulates. Um, just two key fundamental ideas, one of honoring approximations, which if you saw this boy dancing was very approximated, um, and um, the idea of nudging development, which of course is not a new idea. So, um, go back to Lev Vygotsky and zone approximal development, right? But this whole, in this little story, just encapsulates the crucial role of being able to um, notice and name what a child's already doing, and then figuring out the next small step, which I think is so crucial for anyone learning to do anything. Um, it's particularly important for students in certain situations, particularly important for multi-language learners, right? That if you think about anybody who needs just the right next small step, right? Um, um, it's anyone who's for whom learning is more difficult, for students who are trying to navigate more than one language, for students who are learning to do something for the first time, on and on. The important and it's what's interesting is I, I've had more conversations this year with teachers about the importance of nudging development, right? Being able to identify that small next step. I've had more of those conversations this year than ever, simply because coming out of the pandemic. Um, we have more and more teachers saying, oh, I have a much wider range of students' abilities than I've had in the past, right? And so, um, and teachers struggling to meet the needs of students who are perhaps um, um, 
again, different than the students they maybe have had previously. So um, that's one that I, is an old story, but one that kind of just comes back over and over in terms of its timeliness and um, how crucial it is this year more than ever. I'm happy yeah. that you talked about the concept of approximation because that's very connected to working with multilingual students, multilingual students, because they're trying. Yeah. And the best thing we could do is nudge and encourage them instead of saying, no, don't do that. That's not correct. And then cross, cross, cross out. And no wonder they are hesitant to produce um, in English or communicate with us. Right. Yeah, it's true for anyone learning to do anything, but particularly important um, any time that um, um, learning is a little different, a little more challenging, right? Just heightens the importance of it. You mentioned that everything you've learned about writing, you learned from Katie Ray Wood. Would you tell us um, your the core of your writing philosophy? Um, and then what does that look like in class? Yeah, so there are a couple of things. I mean, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, but one of the things certainly I've learned from Katie and that's crucial um, is the role of having a vision for what you're going to make, right? The whole idea of um, being able to study a stack of mentor text, right? Um, and everything flowing from that. So anytime I'm teaching writing, right? Um, Katie's the master of thinking about mentor text, right? Published text. Um, anytime I'm teaching writing, I have to have a stack of published pieces of writing to give children a vision for what they're going to make. And everything really flows from that, you know, before a unit of study starts, um, we sit down as a group of teachers and study that stack of text. Um, the first two or three days of a unit of study and writing, all we do is study a stack of text with students. So you have that immersion phase at the beginning where we're studying a stack of text. Um, we, um, whenever I'm teaching mini lessons, the most common starting point for a mini lesson is looking at what do published authors do in our stack of text. And when I'm conferring with students, I have to always have that stack of text with me to be able to teach with. And so um, everything for me flows from that idea of having a published stack of text um, that matches what we want students to make. It's really not enough to have a stack of text. We have to be, it has to align with what children are making. Um, and so that's the question I ask teachers over and over and over is simply, what's in your stack of text? How does this match what students are um, making? Um, and it's that whole idea of the students making something, which is a little different than thinking about students writing something. And so when we're thinking about the whole idea of, especially with young children, thinking about them making picture books, um, everything that goes into making something in terms of pictures and words, um, but with older students as well, students making feature articles, right? We're creating feature articles, not just writing them. So it's um, everything for me comes back to having a stack of published text. It reminds me of understanding by design or um, hmm? yeah, understanding by design by Matik. And he said, okay, we want to have a goal at the end and then let's backwards right. plan that. And so you, you, but you also use an inquiry approach here in this, you say, here is a stack of mentor text of the genre we're going to read. We're going to learn how to write. And I love the part where you said, we provide that because it gives students an authentic purpose to write or examples mm -hmm. of authentic pieces instead of saying, you're gonna be writing just for me and I'm gonna be reading. And you're gonna say, no, right. we, we switch that around to say, ah, we look at this piece of writing, someone 
in life has actually created this for a very specific purpose. What do you notice about their writing? We're going to do the same thing. Yeah, that's cool. Right. So it's interesting because it is very much a backwards design in that we have a vision for what we're going to make, but then we're not walking in on day one and saying, here's what we're going to make, right? So we're thinking backwards design on it in that we know where we're heading as a class um, or as teachers, right? But um, very much from an inquiry standpoint of starting off right from the beginning saying, okay, what do you notice in this stack of text exactly? Would you actually, since you talked about understanding by design, would you structure that unit for us? Like a unit, if you're planning a unit, how would you start at the beginning, middle, and end, knowing that the end is where we're getting to? Yeah. I mean, so the way I always think about it is projecting units, right? You think about it, the whole idea of projecting how a unit might unfold. Um, I'm never thinking that someone's... Um, going to follow a unit day by day. One of the things I'm greatly concerned about is when um, teachers are letting somebody who's never met their students make the decisions about what to teach day by day in a classroom. And so instead of it being a unit plan, we're very much thinking about a unit projection. How could this unit unfold if everything went perfectly, which we know it won't. We're not expecting it to all go perfectly. Um, but given that, I mean, the idea of a projection, there are um, there's a fairly predictable structure to a unit of study. Um, most units, not all, but most units, we start off with a um, an immersion phase where we're studying that stack of text, right, um, with students, um, just to understand what is this um, new unit we're even um, in, right? What's this new genre in, or what's the big idea for this unit? Um, Throughout the, the middle of that unit, it's a close study of that stack of texts, noticing um, what, um, and teaching students, right, what authors do. Um, and at that end of the unit, it's crucial. You mentioned audience and purpose before. It's crucial that at the end of a unit that we're having some way of publishing these things out in the world. And publishing, I always want to be careful because sometimes people think of publishing as revising and editing that's just what we do to get ready to publish. Nothing is actually published until it's out in the world in some way. The publication is, or publishing is the sharing of it out in the world, not the revising and editing. That's just getting it ready to publish. So there is that very predictable kind of structure of a unit of study, um, unit after unit after unit. I, I appreciate the distinction between publishing and editing. I also appreciate the distinction between uh, unit plan and unit projection. This is what we'd like to yeah. uh, plan for, but we're going to move with the flow of the students and their understanding. So, and it particularly, yeah, I mean, our, uh, say our, our, you know, our job as teachers is to make responsive decisions day by day, not to follow somebody else's plan, but to can use resources and plans and curriculum and standards. But our job as teachers is to translate all of that into daily action based on what happened the day before. So I just, um, I care deeply about teacher decision-making and helping teachers make more responsive decisions um, day by day. I guess I'm speaking to the teachers who have to follow a scripted curriculum those the people who the authors of the scripted curriculum do not know the students and so i feel bad for teachers right. who don't have that freedom to communicate or to structure their lesson in a way that's affirming that is relevant to their students right in front of them yeah what's interesting about that of course is i'm always wondering about 
I, I've, even when teachers have a scripted curriculum or a scripted program like that, the question would always be, and the question would, would go to principals or whoever is requiring them to do that in a scripted way, what should teachers do when they come to a lesson their students don't need, right? And the response should be, well, we modify it, we swap it, we change it. We don't teach something that our students don't need just because it's the next lesson in a script. And really, I don't run into principals. I don't know if I've ever had a principal say, yeah, I understand this lesson doesn't really make sense for this class next, but you have to teach it anyway. And so I think what's incumbent on teachers is to be able to explain to principals, okay, here's what I know about my class. Here's what I know about this lesson I'm supposed to teach. Here's why this other lesson or the modification of this would be better. I don't know that I've ever had a principal that says, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. That would meet your students' needs better, but I want you to teach it the way it is in the program anyway. Um, so, but oftentimes teachers are thinking that's the case. So it's something I'd always want to be pushing back on anyone who thinks that they have to teach this in a certain, um, certain sequence or in a certain way. Oh, that was such an affirming uh, message of support for teachers. The teacher's freedom to choose their scope and sequence, the next lesson. You mentioned about, you've talked a lot of really about um, mentor texts. How do you choose the series of the stack of mentor texts effectively? And then two, how do you get students to start seeing the, uh, the features of the mentor text? Like how many days would you be doing that? Yeah. I mean, so in terms of pulling stacks, there's always, you know, some considerations. Every unit has its own challenge in terms of pulling a stack. Um, there's some that there's lots of mentor texts out there, and it's a matter of narrowing down. And then we're always thinking then about, in that situation, what are some of the criteria? What are some of the things? If I'm pulling feature articles in a fourth grade class, um, what am I looking for in a stack of feature articles, right? Um, same thing if I'm um, pulling a stack in the younger grades, and there are other units where um, it's just a matter of trying to find enough of them. Personal narratives in the younger grades are tricky to find, so it's just a matter of finding enough of them. Um, but in either of those situations, there's two things that pop up every time we're um, pulling a stack of text. One is um, the quantity and complexity of text. I'm not looking for text level. I'm not expecting students to be able to read them with a wide range of um, students in any class. I'm not expecting students to be able to read a stack of mentor text independently. The kindergartners at the beginning of the year can't read any of our mentor texts probably, right? Um, yet, if, as long as I, when I read them to a class, whether it's a fifth grade class or a kindergarten class, when I'm reading the mentor text to a class, um, can they understand it? Is it an appropriate length and an appropriate level of complexity? And then the other one that I'm always thinking about is um, engaging topics right? The range of topics that I'd have. And I would want a range of topics, um, especially in schools where they're often integrating writing units into units of inquiry, when they're integrating writing units into other content areas. I want to be careful that, um, I, I, for example, if I was pulling if it, um, a stack of informational books and a class happened to be studying animals and wanted them to um, students to write things about animals. First of all, we wouldn't start off the unit by writing about animals. We'd start off with topics of choice. Um, but we'd also, I wouldn't need any animal books in my stack. I'd probably put a couple in there, but I wouldn't need any animal books in my stack because there's no unit of study of animal writing. The topic doesn't matter in terms of what I'm teaching. And so I certainly um, um, 
we would want to have a range of topics, but I do care about students having engaging topics. So right away, if I'm pulling a stack of text, I'm thinking quantity and complexity of text, and I'm thinking about, um, about topics. And then at that point, once I have a stack of text, and in terms of um, helping students start to notice, I have to think about how much modeling do I need to do. And so if I'm starting off in an immersion phase, let's you know, usually have two, three, four immersion days at the beginning of a unit. The big question I always have is how much modeling of reading like a writer do I need? How much modeling do I have to be able to do to be able to say, oh, look, look what I noticed here. Let me show you how I noticed this. And depending on the age of students and depending on what their experience is in terms of um, noticing, I may need to do a lot of modeling or very little modeling. Um, so, but I, in terms of just getting them up and going, noticing things, relatively easy to do. If I do a little bit of modeling of that first and then ask students, what do you notice? What I do have to be able to do is when students are noticing things, often they'll, at the beginning, they'll read like a reader. They'll comment on something happening or they'll comment on a fact or something. They'll comment on the content. But I can usually turn that into a noticing about writing. And so um, that way, so it's never a, oh, sorry, that's not right. Instead, it's always, oh, yeah. So here's, um, you know, when a child says, oh, I could tell that girl was really um, sad at that point in the story. I can say, oh, look, that's interesting. How did you know that? You know, we could tell that baby. We could see her facial expression in this picture. Or isn't it interesting how that author told us exactly how she was feeling? Oh, you know, and then what we put on the anchor chart is, oh, characters tell or authors tell emotions rather than, oh, the girl was sad. So it's... Um, relatively easy to get students starting to notice things and to turn whatever they're noticing into a noticing about craft. So to summarize what you said was you gather kids around, uh, you read an engaging mm -hmm. text for them, and as you're reading you're asking them to, to for what they notice about the text. Then you're turning those things... Well, and I'm modeling, yeah. Yeah, is that is that what you mm -hmm. mean by modeling? Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so I'm to point out things that I've noticed. So I'll say, oh, look, I've noticed how this, look at how they do this. Or look, I noticed how this, I'll, I'll model several things that I've noticed, and then I'll ask students what they notice, right? Um, it is important that whenever I'm reading a text like that and we're noticing, though, that it's always uh, something that we've read previously, right? The first time we read something, um, we just respond as a reader, right? The first time we read and or a feature article, or we read a um, realistic fiction picture book, or whatever it is, we have to respond as a reader first, right? Understanding it, then we can go for what do we notice that the author did. So, yeah, important distinction that where he's reading it for enjoyment, reading it to understand first, and then we start to look at craft techniques. Uh, and then you put those things that they notice about craft techniques into um, an anchor chart. Yep, exactly. And then, and this is, it's just, it's noticing at the beginning what, there are actually some other moves that we make in terms of talking about why the author did this. Do we know anyone, other authors who do this? Or what are we going to call this thing? Um, but then throughout the rest of the year, we're going to teach into those things that we've noticed, right? Just noticing on those days won't necessarily be enough. And so then we're going to teach into, you know, many lessons on how to try these things out in your writing. Oh, so that's the next phase. So you have the modeling phase, the inquiry phase, and then you move to the mini lesson phase. That's that, which is the hallmark of yeah. writing workshop. Could you tell us a little bit more about what does that look like? Uh, the mini lesson. 
Yeah, I mean, the key to a mini lesson is that I have one specific teaching point, right? Um, because we have to keep mini lessons relatively short. They're not the most effective way to teach. 25 students learning the same thing, same day, same time. Rarely does everyone need the same thing, when especially when we have that diverse range of learners in our class. So rarely does everyone need the same thing. So many lessons are just limited in how effective they are. Right? Writing conferences are the opposite of that. They're highly effective teaching, individualized one-on-one -on -one teaching. It's just less efficient. It takes a while to get to everybody. And so with many lessons, um, the key is that we're teaching one thing, that we're keeping it relatively short, 10 minutes or so, and so the students have enough time to write. Um, and then when I'm teaching in a mini lesson, it's just a combination of, am I going to show how a published author did this? Am I going to show how I did it as an author? I always have to have my own writing samples as well. And I have to have student writing samples also. I have to have all three of those things when I'm teaching in a mini lesson. And I just have to decide day by day which combination of those am I going to use. I think I've, I've had many authors on uh, who talk about literacy and writing workshop, and I've never heard them say this, but the the message which you said is correct and um, very aligned to what they their sentiment they you said oh the mini lesson is great but it's the least effective and it's the conferencing that really moves the instruction yeah i mean it's not that many lessons are ineffective right it's not it's not they're not effective um we wouldn't have them if they weren't they're highly efficient right it would take forever to teach everything to everybody in conferences we would never and so I have to have a combination of those. It's just the easy trap to fall into is to have many lessons run long, right? And then students don't have enough time to write. We don't have enough time to confer with them. The way to become a better writer is to write a lot. And if our many lessons are running 25 minutes, it's very difficult for students to have enough time to write. So then when we, before we leave, let's, we're going to transition to yeah. conferences. But before we go to conferences, let's talk about the mini lesson in terms of what is the uh, main recommendation that you would give teachers or the thing that you've told teachers and it was like a light bulb moment for them in terms of mini lessons? Um, I, I think the key thing is, like, for example, during the pandemic, I was teaching people often how to do um, low prep mini lessons, meaning that mini lessons shouldn't take 40 minutes to get ready for. And people in the beginning of the pandemic, when they're teaching online, started having spending all this time creating mini lessons that were incredibly involved and complicated. And what I'm always trying to make sure people know is, like, look, I can teach anything right now on the spot if I have those three tools with me. I mean, like right now, I can, you name the unit of study, you name the teaching point, I'll teach it right now on the spot without any preparation. Um, simply because whatever you would say, I've got published pieces of writing nearby. I have my own writing samples and I have student writing samples. And I have those three things. And I just have to decide which combination to use. Um, and if you give me two minutes to get ready for it, I'll teach it well um, or much better. But I can teach anything on the spot with almost zero preparation if I have those three things. Because I'm actually already prepared before the unit ever starts. I have things to teach with. And I just use those things throughout the unit. So I'll make those will make many lessons much, much, much easier for teachers. Oh, that's so effective. You said uh, published pieces, my pieces, and students' pieces. It's when you share with the, them those three types of pieces, um, mentor texts, they can really have a vision of what they have to do. And then they start noticing. You're, te you're, yep. you're teaching them the skill of reading 
like a writer. Right, exactly. Let's go to conferences. Would you tell us about how you structure it and what are your recommendations to make them effective? Yeah. And so it's just always a very typical structure of a conference, right? This conference is just built on, let me do a little bit of an inquiry, a little bit of discovery. Let me see what you're doing already and naming what children can do. So conferences are always going to start with, with strengths. What can the child do already? I can't figure out what comes next unless I know what you're doing. That's where honoring approximations comes in because unless I know what you can do, which means I have to be comfortable with your, your approximation to even be able to see what you are doing. Um, then I can figure out a next small step. But I have to start with strengths. Writing conferences always start with what can you do already. It's the only way I can figure out the next small step. Once I've decided on that next small step, though, which means I have to narrow it down. And that's the thing that teachers ask most often about, about narrowing down to a teaching point. Um, but when I think about the thing that impacts teachers and conferences the most is when they have... Um, tools, resources to teach with. And it goes right back to those same three things. Because what, what happens um, often out in the world is that people don't teach in a conference. And I know it's because I fall. it's the easiest trap for me to fall into. People fall into the trap of um, giving children reminders, um, telling children what to do, correcting something. You can do those things, but none of them are teaching. Reminding isn't teaching, telling isn't teaching, correcting isn't teaching. And so um, what starts to really shift um, um, conferences is when teachers are actually teaching. And the way we can tell if anyone's teaching in a conference, you can see it. It's visual. I could pull up a conference right now on video. We could watch it with the sound off, and you'd be able to tell exactly when I start teaching, right? Because you'd see that point where it's like, oh, look, Matt just pulled out a published text. Or look, Matt, look, he just started teaching. He pulled out his own writing. Or like, Matt, just started teaching. He pulled out a piece of student writing. Or he pulled another student in the classroom over to show somebody how to do something. You can physically see it, right, in a writing conference. I'm going to use some mentor to teach with. And so if um, teachers have those three tools, which are incredibly easy to get, we should already have a stack of published text. It takes five minutes to start our own writing. We have all the students in the class that we've been conferring with. It's easy to have a those um, resources to teach with. Then it's just a matter of which one am I going to use. But that will ch that changes conferences quickly if teachers are actually teaching. What happens? So we talked about mentor text a lot. We're we're, we're mm -hmm. going to circle back to conferences in a second. But what if teachers say, "Oh, I want to push back on mentor text," and because kids are going, just going to copy the mentor text. Yeah, I don't have children copying mentor text ever, If we, especially if we teach them how to find topics. Now, what we do want students to do is to try out techniques that they've noticed in mentor text, right? We want them copying techniques, basically, right? We want them trying those techniques out. But um, I really don't have students that are copying at least the topic or copying the mentor text. They don't have them right there with them to copy necessarily even. But we, we, it's not ever been an issue if we're teaching students how to find topics. As soon as they have their own meaningful topic, then can't really copy someone else's book, right? So um, we simply teach students how to find topics. Okay, that'll be another topic that we get to momentarily. Sure. Let's finish with um, the topic of conferences. What? How can you? That is the hard. Is the most time-consuming part because you're really with kids. How can we make it more efficient? Yeah, I mean, 
writing conferences last five, six, seven minutes, right? Somewhere in that time frame. And so there's some things that we can do to get ready for conferences to make them um, more efficient, make them a little um, more time efficient. Um, one would be to look at student writing in advance before the start of the day. I'm not talking about taking everybody's writing home each night and looking at their writing for hours on end. That's not sustainable. I'm talking about five minutes before the start of school, five minutes at the end of the day, five minutes at some point, just the students who I'm going to confer with next, just the four or five students I'm going to confer with tomorrow, looking at their writing in advance will get me much closer to a teaching point. Um, the other would be what I'm writing in my conferring notes. And one of the columns that I have in my conferring notes, I'm writing down things that I postponed. Right. And so I have a column for goals for the child, next steps and things that I postponed. And if I have good things in that column and I've looked at student writing in advance now before the conference starts, I've already narrowed things way down. I'm not starting from scratch in the conference. I'm saying, all right, what was the last conference about? What did I postpone from that last conference? What didn't I teach in the last one? Um, what did I notice in their writing? Now I can get to a teaching point much, much more efficiently, much quicker. How, let's move to the idea of how to get kids to find their own topics. Yeah, there's a couple of things. One is that I don't typically just brainstorm topics, right? Just making a big, big brainstorm list doesn't particularly help people, especially this, or help students, especially the students who have the hardest time finding topics. And so um, what we do is we teach strategies to brainstorm off of. And we find strategies in published books. We look at the author's notes and figure out how do published authors find ideas. We'll read the author's note in something like Jabari Jumps, where Gaya Cornwall talks about loving swimming when she was little. And so we thought, oh, you know, she was thinking about things she loves. That's how she got the idea for this book. Teaching strategies would be much more helpful than just brainstorming topics, strategies to brainstorm off of. Um, the other is, though, we just write our own. Right? I have teachers all the time write your own, and then we talk about how did you find your topics. If I tell a group of teachers, go write something right now, everybody comes up with a topic. What often happens is when I say, how did you find your topic? Teachers will say, oh, it just popped into my head. It didn't just pop into their head. Something caused it to pop into their head. It just happened so quickly that they're not necessarily aware of it, right? And so what we'd have to be able to do is be able to look closely at our process to find how did we do that? Because then we can teach students how to find topics. So all we need is a bank of strategies for finding topics. Think about people who are special to you. Think about things you do with your friends and family. Think about places you go all the time. Think about things you love. Think about things you know how to do, Think on and on, right? We can easily come up with um, strategies and that's much more helpful for students than just saying, let's find a topic. It's strategy. So what, what might be one of those strategies then? Yeah, so those like, so a strategy would be to brainstorm, right? Um, off of a strategy like, um, think about, um, well, here, let me give you an example of the easiest way. Um, we are teaching a, um, teaching a child one time to find our class to find topics. And we first taught the strategy of, um, this, uh, this only thing I knew about this little boy is that he loves soccer, um, football. And so we, um, taught the strategy first, think about things you love. So that's the strategy. Think about things you love. Soccer never crossed his mind. Okay. Um, we taught another strategy. We taught the strategy. Think about um, things you um, know a lot about. Right. Um, it's another strategy. Soccer never crossed his mind. 
Um, but when we taught the strategy, think about places you go all the time, right? Brainstorm off of te- you know teaching that strategy. Think about things, places you go all the time. He said, "Oh, I go to soccer practice." All- Wait a sec, and then the idea of soccer, right? And so um, the key to that is that students often need multiple strategies, right? Multiple th- ways to brainstorm, um, rather than um, just one. Let's talk about the last phase. One of the last phases um, is about grammar, punctuation, text structure. How do you uh, teach that at the end, which we typically call editing and revision? Yeah, and I'm not to, I'm cautious. I'm not just teaching revision or editing just at the end. We have that um, revision, revising and editing that we're doing to get ready for a celebration, but we teach students how to revise and edit day by day while they're writing. Every day when we're starting to write, we go back and read what you wrote the day before, which is an opportunity to do a little bit of editing and revision. Um, Anytime children are finishing a piece of writing, we have a little checklist of, all right, we're going to think about something with revision, something with editing. We're going to go read it to a partner, and then then we can start a new piece. And so I always want to be careful that we're teaching um, children about revising and editing and that they're doing that throughout a unit, not just at this... um, phase at the end of a unit. I'm just cautious about thinking about revision as a phase or editing, either of those, in as a phase in writing, as opposed to something that writers do while they're writing throughout a piece of writing. And then we can do some extra revision and editing for something that we're getting ready to share at a writing celebration. So uh, the, you're saying it's recursive, like it, through, it goes throughout the process. Um, then specifically, how do you get kids to notice punctuation and text structures when they're revising? Yeah, so I'm very quick to, um, I'm not expecting students just to notice those things, right? If I'm teaching something about conventions and writing, grammar, spelling, punctuation, I can be fairly direct. So let me show you what these authors do. Let me show you how authors use periods at the end of a sentence. Let me show you whatever the, whatever I'm teaching. I can model that, Right. I can show that. I'm not just hoping that students notice that. I certainly can approach it from a more inquiry standpoint and say, what do you notice about this sentence? But I'm also not playing the game of guess what I'm thinking, where um, where people start to think, well, what else do you notice in this sentence? Well, what do you notice about the end of this sentence? What else? There's a point where I'm very quick to say, let me show you what this author does, right? Let me show you how people um, do this in terms of conventions. So, um, like anything, there's a range of how inquiry-based or how directive I'm going to be. I can at times be, let me show you how to do this, right? Um, I'm always starting from an inquiry approach, um, but there's times where I just need to model and show children how to do something. How do you when to know when to leave the inquiry approach and go to something more directive? Yeah, I don't know there's a certain point in that, um, but... Um, as soon as I feel like I'm starting to lead this child to this answer that I'm trying to get them to say, right? <laughs> and I'm, at that point, I can just, I'm going to sh- show them how to do it, right? As soon as it feels like I'm um, trying to get them to say something, let me just go ahead and show you how to do this. That's very clear. It's really helpful. Uh, let's end the podcast with a traffic light teaching. It's a metaphor, red light, yellow light, green light. So a red light is something you ask teachers to stop doing in terms of reading, writing instruction. A yellow light is something that you ask teachers to continue doing 
that they're already doing it. And then a green light is something that you ask teachers to start doing if they haven't. What would those uh, stop, continue, uh, start recommendations for writing would be? Yeah, so the big one here, and the one that I care a ton about, and so you can look at it as a start or a stop, but would be to have units that allow for choice of genre. I mean, so one of the things that con concerns me greatly out in the world um, is when students go um, an entire year, or even worse, year after year after year, and not have choice of genre. I mean, what's incredibly difficult is if I have a um, student who's dying to write fantasy at the beginning of the year, right, the most common one that students will want to write. And if a teacher has to say, sorry, we don't study fantasy this year, just wait till next year. Maybe you'll get to write some fantasy next year. That's tremendously problematic, right? That's pretty hard to tell students, oh, you need to wait 18 months to write in the genre you're dying to write in. And if we do make them wait 18 months and they've become a reluctant writer in the meantime, that's on us, not on them, right? And so... Um, almost as difficult as that is saying, well, no, sorry, we don't write fantasy at the beginning of the year. Just wait till the end of the year. Maybe if everything goes well this year, we'll have a free choice unit at the end if we have time. Well, how much do we value something if it comes at the end if we have time? Not very much. And so um, I would never start the year with a genre study. I wouldn't start the year with a personal narrative unit, which is what most people start with. I wouldn't start the year with a genre study. And it's not an anti-genre stance. I love genre studies. It's just, I also care about engagement. And if we care about student engagement, especially again, for students who are navigating more than one language, for students for whom um, are reluctant writers, for students for whom writing is more difficult, for on and on, we'd have to maximize engagement in writing. And if I want to maximize engagement, we would have to think about choice of genre, right? I would never start the year with a genre study. I'd want to maximize engagement for writing right from the beginning. So if I think about things to start or stop, depending on where teachers are in terms of having craft studies and process studies to balance out a little bit the genre studies they have. Again, I love genre studies, right? I love genre studies. I have genres that people aren't even thinking about writing about. I love genre studies. It's just, in fact, you name the genre, I'll tell you my stack of texts for it, right? And on and on. I love genre studies. It's just everything shouldn't be a genre study. And I'm in school after school where every single unit from the beginning of kindergarten to the end of sixth grade is a genre study. I know schools where students go through seven years of school with nothing but genre studies which is tremendously problematic and contributing often to students becoming low engagement writers. And so if teachers already have craft and process studies, continue to do that, right? Because um, students need them desperately. If students, if teachers don't have craft and process studies in their year, units that allow for choice of genre, I'd want them to start to include those. And there's lots of resources that are easy to do. I can provide all sorts of support on how to do that, right? Um, and if teachers, um, um, yeah, um, 
don't have craft and process studies or only have genre studies, I'd say stop doing that. We need to start having those. So I'm not trying to get around it. I'll, I can give you other things that I'd have teachers start and stop. Um, but all of those, right, I would be thinking about in terms of craft and process studies. Um, I'm just tremendously concerned about student engagement. And I frankly don't know how we can think about student engagement and not consider units of study that are something other than genre studies. And again, I love genre studies, just not the only type of study we should have. So uh, when you're saying craft and process, these are two different things. And when you're saying mm -hmm. uh, craft studies, you're saying the techniques that authors are using to communicate the ideas. And process is the, the steps that authors use to write a, a piece of writing. Right. Yep. And so we can have a, um, as much as we can have genre studies, like we can have a personal narrative unit, a realistic fiction unit, a feature article unit, a literary essay unit, and on and on. We can have genre studies. Great. Love those. We could also have a revision study where it doesn't matter which genre children choose. They can choose any genre they want. And then, of course, all of our mini lessons, all of our teaching is around revision. And so students can show evidence of revising in anything. It doesn't matter what they're writing. And so, in fact, even just saying that sentence, you can write anything you want. I can show you all sorts of video clips of what happens in classrooms when I say, oh, you can write anything you want today. I'm going to teach you about revision. I'm going to teach you about punctuation. I'm going to teach you about whatever. But um, you can write anything you want. I have videos of children high-fiving each other, right? Fist pumping, all these things, they're excited that they're getting to write what they want to write. On the one hand, I'm thrilled with that and at the same time troubled by it because I'm often wondering, why is that such a big deal? Why is this such a rare instance where children are that excited to write what they want to write? I'd love to be in a classroom, right, where students are like, well, yeah, sure, we can write whatever we want today. That happens from time to time anyway. Great. It shouldn't be that rare of an occurrence. Yeah. So revision studies, right? Is or is one or revision study is one type of process study. Where right, you we were talking before about finding topics. If I really wanted to help students be able to find topics well, and it was a big issue in my class, I'd have a unit of study on where writers get ideas. We would just have a three-week unit teaching students strategies. Um, if we were to think about my first unit of the year. If I have a launching writing workshop unit, I wouldn't launch with a genre study. I'd launch with a unit on being a self-directed writer. That's what a that's what a launching study is. A launching unit is how to be a self-directed independent writer day by day. Who cares what genre they're writing if the goal for the unit is to be self-directed and to find independent writing projects? And on and on. So there's plenty of process studies we could have. I get, oh, we've talked a lot about mentor text. If I really want students to become better at noticing what authors do, I'd have a unit of study on reading like a writer. Nice little three, four week unit where we're supporting students and getting better at the habit of mind of noticing and trying out reading like a writer. Just wouldn't matter who, why would we care what genre they're writing in? As long as they're noticing techniques and trying them out, doesn't matter what genre they're writing in. And then we could have plenty of craft studies. I can't imagine teaching kindergarten without having an illustration study early in the year. If I'm in an illustration study, why would we care what genre they've chosen to write in, right? We care about having more detailed illustrations. We have more detailed oral language and we have detailed writing to go with it. That's what we care about. We don't, doesn't matter what genre. If I have a punctuation study, how to use punctuation as a crafting tool, right? It's not about correct punctuation. That's a convention study. 
But if we wanted to go for punctuation as a crafting tool, right, then we'd be thinking about um, um, what are all the ways that people use punctuation to impact voice? What are all the ways that people use um, punctuation to get their reader to pause? What are the ways that they use punctuation to get their reader to emphasize a word? On and on. And so plenty of things we would teach in that unit, and it wouldn't matter what genre children chose. And so there's 20 or so more craft or process studies that would um, positively impact students as writers. They just happen to be focused on something other than a genre. Uh, about 10 minutes into the podcast, I knew I should have signed up for your session. Um, the, regardless if I just came back from a week-long trip with my students, I should have just sucked it up and gone to your <laughs> Saturday, Sunday session. I would have been a better teacher, Matt, for it. I am, I'm just listening to you, I instantly know I'm in the presence of a master teacher. And I'm so happy that you've left principalship to continue working with teachers as a consultant because you have, your reach is now even more extensive. Um, principals are fantastic, but you have really quietly uh, taken your gift and shared it in a different avenue. You would, I know that you are an amazing principal. I'm so happy that you chose uh, this path. We are all the better for it, Matt. Thank you. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. Now onto our recap. The wisdom I'm gaining from Matt is that a teaching moment really happens when we pull out a mentor text during a conference and have students study the writer's actions. Mentor texts provide an authentic way to develop our writing skills. Instead of saying, write like this because I'm telling you to do that, our mentor text says, let's look at how an author does it. What do you notice? What would you like to try in your own piece? Additionally, when we teach multilingual students to look at mentor text as a strategy to improve their writing, we are gifting them with a strategy that will help them for the rest of their lives. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 